Ladies, gentlemen, non-binary, I'm Ethan Shapiro, founder of Climate Change Realty and host of the Change in the Climate podcast. And let me ask you this. Are you aware of any other way to donate thousands of dollars to your favorite environmental nonprofits with zero dollars out of pocket? Because that's what happens when you find your real estate agent with Climate Change Realty. www.ccrealty.org. Find your real estate agent today and save the planet. Enjoy the podcast. Robert, really great to meet you, man. Thanks so much for taking some time to come on the show. Looking forward to talking to you. Ethan, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. It's great to have you, man. You're, you're welcome for inviting you. You're doing something really cool. You've been in this space for a while. I'm kind of excited to dive into it. And I'm not sure it's something that anyone has ever thought of, eating um, water moss, I, I might call it. So um, before we kind of dive in, can you give me a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment? Yeah, I'm Robert Henriksen. I was one of the early pioneers of spirulina microalgae in the U.S., starting in 1977. And uh, I got excited by an idea, which is if you could grow food, a high-protein food, that's 20 times more productive than any other food on the planet, uh, 20 times less land and water, wouldn't that be exciting? You're growing at the base of the food chain. So that, that math is pretty exciting. So. Uh, with a friend who started a company. We moved from Berkeley, California, which is real nice, down to the hottest, sunniest place we could find in the U.S., which was Imperial Valley, California. And there we set up a series of prototype farms to learn how to grow spirulina because our goal was to grow it and introduce it to the natural food market, which was just starting at that time. Mm -hmm. That's how I got going. So what is spirulina and how did you first hear about it uh, to begin with? It is a microscopic algae. See it under the microscope. It's the shape of a spiral. That's why they call it spirulina. And um, <clears throat> gee, there are hundreds of thousands of species of microalgae. It means they're microscopic. Spirulina is a blue-green algae, which is another name for cyanobacteria, which was the first photosynthetic life form on this planet 3.6 billion years ago. And at that time, the planet didn't have oxygen in the atmosphere. And cyanobacteria created the first release of oxygen to slowly build up our atmosphere. And at higher concentrations of oxygen, then plants could evolve nucleuses, more complex structures. And so nucleic Algae became created like chlorella, and finally aquatic plants, and then plants and animals and fish. So microalgae is responsible for creating our atmosphere and keeping it in balance. Yeah, microalgae is kind of like our greatest great-grandparents then, if you want to look at it that way. We are the yes, our immortal ancestor. We're the descendants of it. What were you doing at the time when you came came across this stuff? What were you were you studying something? Were you working somewhere? Yeah, I mean, I I had a you know I went to school on the East Coast. I got invited by my country to go to Vietnam as a naval officer. Fortunately, that didn't last long. Then I traveled the world. I, I was in India and Afghanistan and Nepal for almost a year. But when I came back, I learned about money at Chase Bank. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be on the other side of the table. I moved to California. And I was a teacher in a spiritual school. And the question was, well, now what? You know, what, what am I going to do with all this? 
And a friend of mine introduced me to Spirulina. He was a researcher and an entrepreneur. And I said, this sounds great. Why don't we try to grow it? No one's growing it commercially around the world yet. Um, and let's see if we can sell it and get people to eat it. And that's what got us going. Why? Why, why did you want people to eat it? What's so great about it? Well, if you look at the research, it's incredibly nutritious. It's the whole spirulina, not just a plant with a nut or a root or a leaf. The entire thing is 60% protein, very digestible. And it has these amazing phytonutrients and pigments which researchers around the world had found had tremendous health benefits for cleansing and immune system stimulation, antioxidant protection. What an amazing package. And if we could get people to eat a little spirulina every day, just a few grams, they would be healthier. And to the extent that it would replace other conventional foods like meat, move us away from a meat-centered diet, would have tremendous benefits for our planet. Do you know what percentage, for example, protein is like a eight ounce steak offhand? Well, of course, the steak has moisture in it, a lot of water, but it's the steak's around 20%. Protein. No kidding. So this is a, this yeah. particularly dense. So, and soybeans, which is touted as a high protein, is about 35%. Okay. So this is 60% and it's very digestible. There's nothing preventing your body from digesting all of it. Yeah, and there's there's two other things I wanted to explore in the the pro, on the nutrition side of the spirulina. Not only is it a very protein dense food, but it's also I had read it's a complete protein source with all the essential amino acids. How deep how deep can you go on that? Just kind of giving a brief explanation. It has all the essential amino acids. Usually we hold up eggs as the perfect amino profile with the perfect balance. And uh, spirulina is a very good balance of amino acids. So it is complete. Um, and you can complement it with grains. It'd be wonderful. So it's very high protein, very digestible. Doesn't have things that build up in your system like a lot of fats, toxic things. It's, and it's a cleanser. It's a powerful cleanser as well as a booster. We've got an interesting episode coming up next week all about nutrition. So I guess we don't want to go too deep on this today, but um, micronutrients, macronutrients, vitamins, and minerals are the keys to a uh, complete diet. And there's a lot of discourse around diets, but um, not only is spirulina a complete protein source, which means that there's these different amino acids that not all protein sources have. For example, I'm a big, I'm a plant-based eater and I eat a lot of lentils, but lentils are not a complete protein source, unlike an egg or, or spirulina might be. But also, um, there's these essential fatty acids that humans need to survive. And spirulina has those as well. And they're complete, right? The, right. Like, when I take a right. supplement for um, vitamin, oh, I'm not sure if it would be an omega-3 supplement, that would be made out of a microalgae, wouldn't it? Yeah. 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 So, Spirulina has EP, is it A? Is it EPA and DHA? EPA, you're talking about an algae which has a super high quantity of EPA, which is fabulous. Spirulina has a different okay. lipid profile, GLA, and it would be great to complement spirulina and the high EPA algae. So it's like having a menu of algaes. These algaes are superstars in one way or another. And spirulina has 60% protein and an amazing um, 
thing called phycocyanin, which is blue, a blue color, which has tremendous therapeutic benefits, but isn't strong in EPA, which other okay. allergies can offer. Sounds like spirulina is your girl. You met her, you fell in love, and you've been infatuated ever since, huh? <laughs> That's right. Um, it's a beautiful organism. It's not so easy to grow microalgae because if you can imagine you have a body of water, you need warmth and sunshine. And if you add nutrients, as you know, algae will bloom. But we get all kinds of algae and they're microscopic. How do you separate out the kind you want from all the other stuff? They're all different shapes and sizes. And you have to filter them out based on the shape of the organism. The beauty of spirulina is you actually can cultivate an outdoor culture of spirulina and keep out other algae because it grows at a very unusual high pH, high alkalinity. Normal water is a pH of 7 or 8. Everything can grow in that space. Spirulina grows at mm. 9 to 10. Naturally grows in alkaline lakes around the world that have soda ash in them. So if you create the water chemistry, highly alkaline, high pH, it discourages other microalgae to grow, and you can just grow spirulina, which loves that's it. Interesting. So that's why it's been so popular. It's actually easy to grow low-tech. You don't have to have all this fancy stuff to purify everything to keep out other organisms. And it harvests on a screen like a shirt cloth or micro screen, nylon screen, because the filaments catch on the screen. You don't need fancy centrifuges or other equipment. So it makes it available to a lot of small okay. farmers. So we're talking about eating these microorganisms. And I'm sure the thing that's on everybody's mind is, uh, what does it taste like? Well, you know, most spirulina has been dried. And that's what people buy in the stores as tablets or powder. And depending upon that process, it can be pretty mild or not so tasty. That's due to the drying process and maybe where it's grown. However, if you have ever harvested fresh spirulina before drying, it's like a yogurt, dark green. It can be as thick as tofu. When you taste that, there's no hmm. flavor at all. So what's happening with a lot of entrepreneurs who are growing spirulina now is they're selling it fresh. Interesting. Yeah, and you just drop drop a spoonful into a drink, or in my case, I also freeze it to preserve it in little uh, portion cups. Drop it in, melt it, stir it up. It doesn't change the flavor if you put in apple juice or anything else. It's just dark green, and you get all that benefit of the fresh spirulina. It's not huh. even dried. That sounds pretty good to me. Um, how long have we been growing this? Is the 1970s the first time when people started growing this for food? People have been harvesting it um, for centuries. That's different okay. than actually cultivating it. There's uh, the legends of the Aztecs in Mexico when the Spanish arrived in the 1500s. They were pulling algae out of the lakes in Mexico City and drying them in the sun. That was spirulina. Um, currently in Chad... Africa, there are lakes around the lakes, and the women of the Kanabu tribe have harvested spirulina from those lakes for centuries. We don't know how long. And they, they get the spirulina and they 
filtered through cloth, and then they get a patty and they and they dry it in the sun. And that's been the traditional way. It's only been since the late 1970s that humans have attempted to cultivate it in specially designed ponds, adding nutrients to recreate that natural alkaline lake ecosystem. Do you want to share a bit about your experience when you started one of the first uh, farms? Well, we, we did a little pilot in, the Ber in Berkeley, California, but we needed to go to a warm climate. So that's why we went down to Imperial Valley and we excavated ponds in the desert and put in paddle wheels. It's like a raceway, so it goes around in a loop. It's really shallow because the sun only penetrates so far. And the paddle wheels are needed to move the water around. You can't have it just be stagnant. You need to move it around. And so we just made every mistake you could possibly make. Naturally. Trying to do this down in the desert. And um, after a couple of years, we got to the point where we needed to build a real production farm. And we needed a few million dollars to do that. And, you know, we tried to raise money in California through venture capital. But they weren't interested in agriculture at that time. Now, you know, agriculture is a real hot, hot area for investment, but not back then. And uh, so we went to Japan and got a Japanese corporate partner who was also growing spirulina at that time in Thailand. No kidding. And that's how we got financed to get started. Before we, that, we had one angel investor that helped us get down to Imperial Valley and go through that process of the startup farms. Okay. That really helped. But to raise the big money, we had to go overseas to get the money. And how does growing algae compare to growing like traditional crops like corn or soy or something like that? Those crops have a season, which can be several months or half a year. So you get one harvest. With spirulina, um, you harvest continuously. So once you get the culture up to a certain density and you keep feeding it, you can harvest from that pond every several days. You harvest a little, put the nutrients back in, grows up, you harvest a little more. It's a continuous process. It's not a batch. You don't harvest it and throw away the water. You return the nutrient-rich water back to the ponds, which is great. And you can keep that going as long as you have a good season. You could keep those ponds going for six or eight months. Now, in Imperial Valley, the summer is hot, and we can grow spirulina from March to October. But the winters are actually great for people, but too cold for spirulina. So it's essentially a seven-month growing season. Not bad. And after the season is over, we drain and clean the ponds, give everybody a vacation, uh, and then people come back to work, and we start up again in March. If we were in a place like India or some places in Southeast Asia or China or Africa, you could grow year-round. So it's incredibly productive. Yeah. When you say add nutrients to the water, what exactly is that? You know, the primary nutrient is CO2, carbon dioxide. So spirulina is approximately 50% carbon. You have to add that. Now, either you can add it in the form of bicarbonate, like baking soda or soda ash, which you need to start in your ponds to get the alkalinity at a certain level. And you can replenish it by adding CO2. So you actually pump carbon dioxide into the ponds to grow the algae. In addition, you need less amounts of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, iron, all the things that plant needs, spirulina needs as well. But they have to be in a water in a way that can 
be soluble. You don't want to just dump nutrients in and fall to the bottom. They have to be in the water so the algae can absorb it. But carbon dioxide, that's what, that's what algae eats. Carbon dioxide, they release oxygen, they consume CO2. Sounds like a pretty uh, environmentally viable thing to grow these days, huh? Well, it is because it's so productive, as I described to you, it's probably 20 times more productive as a protein source than soy, 40 times more productive than corn, and 200 times more than beef cattle. In other words, you need a lot less land to grow food the more that you shift to an algae-based culture like this. So that was one of the most exciting things. We know we're using almost all the good land around the world to grow crops, and we're also cutting down forest, releasing CO2 to create more space to grow stuff. And we have to take the pressure off that. And the way to do it is to grow crops like microalgae, which produce more protein on much less area and more efficiently. And not to mention draws down carbon out of the atmosphere, which we could definitely use because that's what happens. It's the sun well, is what it's growing off of, right? Yep. Yep. It takes that, it pulls in the carbon, it's carbon dioxide, it uses solar energy from the sun. It could also use lights as well, but it's used solar energy and then it creates its biomass. Yeah. Uh, and then we harvest it and dry it. Can, does it only, because it grow in fresh water or salt water or both? It grows in fresh water and brackish water. It's like slightly meaning salty? alkaline or, water. Okay. Not, it's not an ocean water algae. Um, ocean water has a lot of calcium, which precipitates out nutrients. It's hard for spirulina to grow. It's not a marine algae. It grows in fresh water, but actually you have to add carbonates and salt to make it brackish. So places in the world where there's brackish water, not good for regular crops, would be great for spirulina. Awesome. What, what role do you think this food has to play in feeding the world in the future? Well, what we see is it's on a large scale, it's still more expensive to grow a protein like from spirulina than the system we have for growing like from soy, right? It's still pretty expensive. We have to, it's kind of a, a complex thing because basically, as you may know, Growing food, the price you pay in the market is not really related to the cost of production because a lot of things are externalized. For example, when we grow crops, there's a lot of soil erosion, water consumption, energy consumption, and a lot of that's not reflected in the market price. In other words, when, when you buy, if somebody goes and buys a, a burger, a fast food burger, maybe it's three to five dollars, but is that really the social cost of that burger? Nope, not if it's a rainforest-fed burger. So first of all, we have to look at ourselves as a circular economy where we look at all the life cycle costs and analysis and to see how just the market price of a product doesn't really reflect what the real cost is on our environment and our health, which we pay for in other ways. It's off the balance sheet. So first, it would be good to have a level playing field where we have true costs accounting based on nature, not just on the market economy, which is generally extractive, linear, industrial, and doesn't pay for pollution, loss of natural resources, or human health issues. 
You don't pay for that when you buy a product. We have social programs that pay for that, but that's extra. But we should start looking at life that way. Agreed. Because when we grow something like spirulina, we don't have a lot of externalized costs. It's what it costs to grow, and it costs a lot to scale up those systems. So um, first of all, make a level playing field. To get the cost of spirulina down, we've got to be at much larger scale because food production is huge. There's, there's probably about 10 to 20,000 tons of spirulina grown around the world today. But, you know, food production is in the millions of tons. Right. So we still have a ways to go. Um, in terms of carbon dioxide, yes, spirulina consumes CO2. But it, it doesn't fit the need of sequestration. Okay. As, as you know, that's your area. I guess you would say uh, sequestration would be holding carbon for 100 years or more, mm-hmm. something long-term. If they're growing microalgae, you're probably eating it. So you're actually just delaying the release. But it affects CO2 reduction because you're avoiding products which have a much higher CO2 emission profile. Oh, interesting. That's the beauty of it. You have to look at that. So if you can eat a little spirulina and less meat, that really has an a big effect on CO2 emissions when people around the world start doing that. Definitely. Um, but speaking of health, are there any health risks associated with growing algae or eating algae that you're aware of? Well, spirulina has been safely consumed for centuries, generations, and we have the historical records, people in Chad, and scientists have not found any reason why not to eat spirulina. It doesn't have in itself any toxic issues. Of course, you want it to grow in a clean environment. You want it to grow in basically water that doesn't have toxic elements in it. But aside from that, it's safe. And it's been approved by the US and European FDAs as a safe food. Yeah. And you've certainly come up with plenty of different creative ways to consume it. So I'd love to hear about all the different products that you've sold over the years, like your Spirosource brands. Any particular favorites that come to mind? Well, originally you start just selling the stuff as spirulina powder, which you take a spoonful, you mix it in a drink, or tablets, which are so easy to take, put that or put the powder in capsules. So that's been traditional for 40 years or more. But that limits it really as a supplement. What's happening now is beside the idea of eating it fresh, of course, you need a local, local producer for that. It's a wonderful way to get it fresh. I also can freeze it which keeps it longer. If you have fresh spirulina, it's probably good for a week, even in the fridge. So you want to eat it right away and you need a continuous local source. You can freeze it, keep it much longer. But what's happening now is very much like what you see happening in all protein, where you're getting plant-based meats, impossible burgers, all that stuff is happening. There's a tremendous push for food technology to turn plant and vegetable matter into high protein things that taste like meat to get people off meat. And the same thing is happening with algae and spirulina. And there's some terrific food innovation going on, turning algae biomass into foods that we think we're eating like fish. Oh, that tastes just like fish. Well, that's like meat. So that's one of the most exciting developments because we want to move away from just being a supplement into a real food ingredient that can be used. The other 
interesting development is the blue color is being extracted from spirulina called phycocyanin. And it's the first natural blue that's been allowed in the U.S. and European market. And it's blue is a big deal. It's one of the three primary colors. It's used in all foods. And having a natural, not a chemical blue is a big deal. And spirulina is a source of that. Best in the world. Are we talking about blue for dyeing food or changing the color of a food that people are eating? Yeah, you don't necessarily think of eating blue foods. But blue is a primary color. So you make green with it and other right. things. But it's very popular in drinks. Blue drinks are getting very popular these <laughs> days. And uh, beside being blue, the phycocyanin has tremendous health benefits. It's the active ingredient in spirulina for cleansing our body, our kidneys, our liver, discharging that stuff. So spirulina is a tremendous detoxifier. And for if you want to live long and healthy, it's something that you should definitely have in your diet. Well, you sell it well, man. Um, as far as what you saw being most popular over the years, was it more like the pill supplements or was the powder typically what you found people were most interested in buying? Oh, you know, pills are convenient. So uh, people take the tablets, the powder, you can mix it in a blender and smoothies and it's fine. If it has an off taste because of the way the powder was made, you, you can mask it with, uh, fruits and things like that in a blender. But as I say, they're, they're popular, but it's a niche market. It's supplements are good to have, but we want to get spirulina in foods, but it's got this dark blue-green color. And you put a little bit into a pasta, you have a dark green pasta. If you put a little bit into bread, well, who wants green bread, right? So, <laughs> there's a lot of food technology that has to go into dealing with the color issue okay. to make it like food that we enjoy. And that's what's going on these days. A lot of investment in that right now. Interesting. So let's talk about something that you've been getting into lately, which is these um, smart micro farms. Can you explain kind of what that is and how they work? Well, because there's a proliferation of small scale farming around the world, it's easy to build a pond, put a greenhouse over it. The hardest thing is to manage the culture. And even scientists who've been doing spirulina for decades, they run into problems because you're dealing with a fast growing micro culture and all of a sudden something happens it's not right it's not growing it's like you can pull your hair out and if you don't have an on-site algae scientist you're kind of screwed so um, part of the idea of smart micro farms is to is to have smart technology to automate the process so for example you have cameras and you can see the, your ponds you have microscopes which can be you can send microscope videos and images online so that other people who are not even at your site can help you monitor your ponds in real time so that you can avoid crashes and things going wrong. Because a typical entrepreneur, not, a, not an algae biochemist by any means, and you run into problems you, you didn't even know existed. So the idea with smart technology is to link up small-scale growers with experts who can actually help them get through difficult times when things aren't going well. Who are you finding is interested in growing these these micro farms? What type of person and what's their goal? Is it a hobbyist or is someone actually trying to start a business out of it typically? Well, there are uh, sites online where you can become a hobbyist. In other words, they'll give you a kit and you can go buy 
an aquarium tank at Petco and set it up in your house and play with it. And for someone who's never done it, I recommend they do that just to get involved in the process. You grow it in a tank and then you you pour or pump the water through a little micro screen and you harvest a little wet culture and you can taste it. And that's great. Um, but a lot of people want to be commercial. They actually would like to make a living doing this. Now, it's interesting how this started. When I started, every, we were doing big scale commercial farms. But at the same time, what occurred was we connected with non-governmental organizations who wanted to grow it in places like Africa and India on a small scale for people and keep it in their community. Because as you know, large-scale production is global commodity stuff. It doesn't really get to the people who really need it, like in a poor African village or in India. And so there was an understanding of developing an appropriate scale technology. And a lot of this came out of France into the countries of former French West Africa. And interns would go down from France and help people in Africa get started with their farms. And then after a couple of years, burnout being in Africa, they go back to France and there's no jobs what's to do, but they have a family farm. They put up a greenhouse and they start growing it. So this happened at well, about 2000, the year 2000, this was first the first greenhouse spirulina in a Western temperate country, Europe, was set up. And now that's just taken off in France over the last two decades. There's over 150 small-scale spirulina farmers all over France that spread to Europe. Now it's in North America. And it's, it's finding a niche in the local economy because local people who are smart entrepreneurs, they want to get started. You not only have to grow it, but then you package it, put your brand on it, sell it in your local market. You're not trying to compete as a commodity. You're just selling it locally. Now, the beauty of this model is... Although it costs you more to grow it on a small scale, it's more labor intensive, you're capturing up to 100% of the retail value if you sell it yourself direct. Sure. Right. If you're a, a commodity producer and you're making spirulina powder and selling it around the world, you're only getting 10% of its value. That ends up in the stores because it goes to wholesalers, it goes to manufacturers, they make the products, it goes to distributors, it goes to brokers, it goes to the stores. It's only 10%. But if you can take that process and do it all yourself, you can get a much higher value for the product directly. You can sell it online. You can take it to stores yourself. You can do it in your local community. So it really supports local agriculture. And that's what part of the attraction is. Definitely. How much does it cost to, to set up one of these farms and and how is it how do you do it? Is it just you, you said a fish tank would be like a hobbyist. What what would this micro farm look like? Well, you'd have to do it outside in a place where you can set up a greenhouse. And a lot of people that get started have some advantage. Like maybe they have some family land that's in, they're already into agriculture. Maybe they already have greenhouses. And with the electrical and water hookup and all that, having infrastructure around that you can use is incredibly valuable because that's the most expensive part. So, yes, you can do it in an urban environment, but typically that may be in a system like in a warehouse where you have to have artificial lighting that costs more. You can do it. It can be done, but it's more expensive. 
So the question is, maybe you have some family advantages where you have a place you can grow it already set up where there's, you just, my first time when I went commercial is I have a family farm up in Washington and we had a greenhouse there growing all kinds of tomatoes and things like that. So I took a portion of it and put in spirulina ponds and grew it there. We already had the electrical and the water. That's a big deal because the actual components of putting in a plastic liner for the ponds and a little paddle wheel or pump harvest green is in the tens of thousands of dollars, not so much. But if you have to actually excavate on a piece of land to level it, put in a greenhouse, bring in power and water, that can really add up. So that's that's the those are the things to consider. It's good to have your own money to do that or family money or someone who's your friend uh, to get going. And then you can scale up from a small size, harvest your product, build a brand, sell it in the local market, see how it goes. Hey, if you sell build another pond. That goes, build another pond. So you scale up as you need to, and you may get some income going as you go and see if you like to do that. It's a lot of work. So you've been working on this stuff 320, 40, 40 something years now. That's right. Where yeah. do you, where do you see this going in the future in the next 40 years? Well, there'll be a couple tracks. There'll be the continual expansion of small scale farms for local entrepreneurs. And they're great because they build a market. They, they're innovating all kinds of products in the local market. And that will continue to happen in places like Africa, South America, and even in the cold countries. There'll be all kinds of systems, more high tech, where you add light and heat and stuff like that. So that's all underway. <clears throat> the next step for large scale is to get really large. And instead of a linear production model, which we pioneered 40 years ago, we need to look at how we can do this in a circular bioeconomy. For example, um, if you had a spirulina farm next to a very big oil refinery or cement plant, which is emitting CO2, you could economically capture that CO2 to grow your spirulina. Um, that would be a great thing to do. And any excess heat from that plant could be used to keep your ponds warm in the cold season. Now those ponds might actually be tanks where it's you're using both sunlight and LED light. But in any event, the proximity to your nutrient sources like CO2 would be very important. So it would provide an economic environmental service, which is using the CO2 that's about to be emitted at least you're putting it into a new food. And even though eventually that will be admitted, that food is replacing another food, which is causing huge amounts of CO2 emissions. I mean, agriculture is probably the number two, number two source of emissions in the world after energy. Right. The way we grow is so inefficient, as you know, as a plant-based person. So if you can replace on a mass scale some foods which are real big emissions, that's a huge benefit in saving CO2 emissions. And if you can grow so much food in algae that you can rewild some of the land that's being used for agriculture and grow big trees, storing lots of carbon, that's another benefit for growing and consuming algae. So even though algae doesn't sequester CO2 long term, 
because you're going to consume it in some way, if, whether it's food or materials. Um, it offsets the consumption of really high emission products. And that's a big deal. I'd like to it definitely that faster. Is. So that's part of being in the circular bioeconomy. You know, we're thinking of the whole system itself, the life cycle analysis of what is the real cost of growing a food. And now we're paying for in high CO2 levels, the cost of growing food in inefficient ways, which causes a lot of CO2 emissions. It's definitely the right question to be asking, but the the food the food thing is is a tricky topic because there's stuff like silvopastures and regenerative agriculture and integrating grazing and livestock into the the farms that can actually be net net positive for the environment. And um, yeah, the plant based thing was very intriguing to me. I think it, it'll be six years here soon uh, when I w- watch this video about how not to die and the health benefits. Um, one of the things that's most compelling to me about the spirulina is that it's a complete protein source, which is very uncommon for a plant-based food to to have all the essential amino acids, which is, again, we'll, we'll go into that on another podcast. But there's there's no doubt the, the, this these are the questions to be asking. I don't have the, the firm answers on the, the diet stuff, um, but it's good to it's good to have lots of different alternatives just generally, just so you can understand how different things work and see what the different pros and cons of each thing are. Right. Um, <clears throat> sure. What you're saying about all these new methods of agriculture and growing, we need them all because right. all they're, they're part of looking at things in a systemic or circular way, which is we, we need to grow things differently and improve our carbon uptake in our pasture system and so forth and have regenerative farming. I think that's all, all part of the package that we have to have. Totally improve the health of our soils, yep. enrich our communities, yeah. bring up disparaged communities in other countries that haven't uh, gotten to where we are. Totally, yeah, I like it, man. What 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 do you think you've learned most from all of your travels, living in different countries and seeing how different people are growing spirulina around the world, or just in general? What do you think you learn most from interacting with people from all different walks of life? Well, I know how hard it is for people to do it to grow spirulina. They have to learn a whole new thing. So I'm always impressed with the effort that it takes. And I'm just blown away of how passionate and devoted they are to making life better for people. Because a lot of people growing on a small scale, they're not making a lot of money at it. But, you know, they see malnutrition in their children and so forth. And so they really want to help. So most people are coming from a really good place. And that's uh, very heartwarming that they, they want to do good. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily want to go the corporate route. They want to keep it local, regional. And I think that's that's great. Right. Cool, man. Well, I love how you you've niched, you niched down in your career and really went for it into this thing that I think, again, if you work at something for a long time, you finally see it begin to proliferate into the mainstream of society. I think with the benefits that you we've discussed today, I think it's kind of inevitable. So it was a pleasure to talk to you on the podcast today. Do you have any other final pieces of advice for young folks who are passionate about improving our world? Well, I think what you're doing, um, bringing people in to talk about how we can improve a planet and have a healthier life. That's a big deal. And I think people just keep getting educated because things are moving really fast in terms of our understanding of how we can take care of ourselves and our health and our planet and keep ourselves healthy and keep our planet healthy. So it's just, 
using our imagination, we're going to really need it in the coming decades in order to solve the problems that we've created already. So uh, I'm, that's really exciting. Very good. Well, I was excited to have you on the show and it's been a pleasure to keep up the great work, keep supporting all the local farmers. And Robert, I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ethan. I did. appreciate talking with you. Bye. You got it. All right, everybody. We'll see you. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.